This is a text we're all really familiar with. We've heard this preach. I've preached on this text as a, um, as a missionary speaker multiple times. Uh, in fact, um, as I, Ann and I were talking about what the sermon was going to be on, and I had told her it was this text because this is the introduction to Advent, she actually said, um, don't preach on that. I've already heard you preach on that. So um, this is a text we've dealt with. And, and uh, I have been shocked at how, uh, and this happens sometimes for, for a pastor and a preacher, uh, I have dealt with this text uh, incorrectly. Um, and I, I struggled when I first read that this was the text that the lectionary writers had chosen to introduce Advent, why in the world would five, six hundred years ago, this text be chosen to begin the Christmas season. This just, nobody has this text up in their house on a, with a Christmas wreath around it. I, nobody. I mean, nobody says, oh, let's sing the, the Christmas carol about all the wicked goats departing into eternal judgment. Uh, it's just not done. And so I want us to look at this text, and the first step for us to understand what Jesus is saying is to put this in its context. And it should be really easy for us to put this text in its context because this is the way Matthew ends the Olivet Discourse that we've been talking about for the last two months. We know exactly what's going on in Jesus' life. That Jesus is literally teaching the disciples. He's with a crowd around him, and he's got the Sadducees coming up and asking him questions. The exact same thing that we've been seeing in Luke is this is just Matthew giving his rendition of this story. It's just like if two people saw the same event, they're going to describe it a little bit differently. If that's not uncommon or unusual, that's how we tell stories, and the Gospels are narratives. They're stories. It's the same time of teaching. And so all of this is in response to the question, Lord, when are these things going to happen? That Jesus had said, this temple that y'all think is so pretty, soon not one stone is going to be left on another. The people say, when? When's that going to happen? And then Jesus sets off to answer that question and has a long set of teaching. The longest answer that Jesus gives to any questions in the Gospels is right here. We've seen how Luke structures things. Well, Matthew structures it a little bit differently. In Luke, Matthew's telling, Jesus gives the example of the fig tree. Remember the story in Matt preached on this text where Jesus says, hey, look at the fig tree. When it puts leaves on, you know that it's spring and then soon's going to be summer. You know that's how things go. It's not unlike we have the saying, red sky night, sailors delight, red sky morning, sailors take warning. If you wake up and it's red in the morning, uh, the sky's red, then it's probably going to rain that day, etc. It, it, so look at the fig tree. You see that it's putting on leaves, so you know that spring is here and summer's soon going to fall. These things are going to happen. Then, eight weeks ago, I preached on the, the Jesus' parable of the talents. Matthew has that here in between, where Jesus tells the story of the king who goes to a far country, gets his kingship, um, and then uh, he gives the, uh, his followers some one talent, some three, some five. And that story is then 
falls in Matthew 25 here. And we remember that the point of that whole story was it's all the king's talents. It's all the king's money. And we, we looked at how we use the gifts that God gives us and how we use it should be for his kingdom because it's the king's talents, not our talents. Then Matthew has this story. Now, we have had multiple parables that have lined up. Uh, we had, and this teaching is not a parable. Now, you can, and I've heard it called the parable of the, the sheep and the goats. You have as well. But the difference between a parable and a prophecy is that in all the parables, Jesus says, it's like. It's like a man were to go into a field and throw seeds. Some of the seeds falls on hard ground. Some of them fall on good, good ground. Matthew likes to say, the kingdom of God is like, and then God, Jesus tells the parable. In Matthew 25 here, we don't have that. We have that for the other parables. If you look at the, the uh, parable of... Um, the parable of the ten virgins, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. The parable of the talents, for it is like a man going on a journey. We don't have that here. Jesus doesn't start out with this is like. He says when the Son of Man comes in his glory. This is not a parable. This is a prophecy. This is not Jesus saying it's like this. Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. And so there's a difference and we need to read it differently because with a parable, we're trying to see underlying what's the representation. With a prophecy, we take it for what it is. This is what's going to happen. The king is going to come in all his glory. He's going to gather all the nations together. He's going to gather everybody together, and he's going to separate the people the way a, sheep, uh, the way a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is not a parable. It's a prophecy. Now, we've all heard this text preached a bunch. Like I said, I've preached it myself. Generally speaking, when we hear this preached, and I think you'll all agree with me, this is how it's preached. In this parable, we have four characters. We have the sheep, and the sheep are us. Whenever this sermon is preached, it's usually we, whoever we are, are the sheep. We're the good guys. You have the goats, and the goats is them, those other people who maybe their faith is not taken seriously. Maybe there's someone who they, they have a mental uh, agreement with the gospel, but they don't take it seriously, and we can see that in their actions, that the goats don't, uh, they don't have faith like James. A lot of times James is brought into it. And again, I'll say, as I looked at my notes when I preached on this sermon, I brought in James where James says, show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. We have the sheep, the goats. We have the least of these. The least of these, my brethren. And usually this is preached and the least of these are Poor people. The least of these, my brethren, are just poor people who are out there. And then we have the king. And so normally this sermon is preached. The way that we show that we're believers is that we take care of poor people who are around us and people who are, we look at, at them as less than us. 
And I will say that even people who don't really consider themselves Christians have a tendency. I've been to many soup kitchens. I've been to to food distributions. And the least of these is used quite frequently. That the way, the problem with that interpretation is multifold. One of them is, is the way to go to heaven is to feed poor people. And there's lots and lots and lots of groups in throughout human history that have tried to take care of poor people who aren't believers. So we out of hand can say that the interpretation that the way that we make it to heaven is by doing nice things to poor people, by visiting people who are in the hospital, by visiting people when they're in jail, by th- that that's not how it is because the rest of the Bible wouldn't agree with that. The Bible makes it really clear that the way that we go to the Father, the way we get to heaven, is through Jesus Christ. The rest of the Bible wouldn't agree with that interpretation. In fact, as I researched, I found out that this text was never translated or interpreted that way until about the mid-1800s, when Christians had a tendency to be better off. You see, it wouldn't make any sense if all of the believers in a country were poor people, then how we take care of other poor people. Do you get what I'm saying? It would only make sense if the people who call themselves believers are affluent that that interpretation of this text would make any logic at all. For example, where we lived in Central Asia, uh, if you became a believer your family would almost instantaneously have a funeral service for you. They would cut you off. We're not going to have anything else to do with you. You are dead to us. If you went so far on your ID card, like your driver's license or your ID card, it would say religion, Muslim. And if you went to the authorities and said, I want to have my ID changed, instead of it saying Muslim, I want it to say Christian. And they did that. The moment that that happened, you became unemployable. Because anybody that interviewed you, when they looked at your ID, would say, wait, wait. It says here, Christian. You're not a Muslim? No, no, I'm a Christian. Well, I think we found somebody else for this position. Every believer that we knew, that we worked with, had a really hard time working. They were constantly in financial issues because they couldn't get a job. So how would this text apply to them? How are they supposed to help the least of these when they can't feed themselves? In Central America, it was really, really common in a general church service. So let me just kind of walk you through the way a church service went down in Columbia. First of all, uh, our idea of of a of a church service being an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, that was completely thrown out the window. The hardest thing for us to get used to was the fact that church said that it started at 945, but if you actually showed up at church at 945, there wasn't nobody there. The preacher would be there turning the lights on and unlocking the door. And so probably 1030, 1045 people would start wandering in. Kids would be running around everywhere. Uh, there was no idea of nursery or child uh, or kid city kind of a thing. Kids are just running around everywhere, and then about 11 o'clock, people would start lining up around the outside, and there was a mic set up, 
and people would go to the mic just like this, and they would go to the mic, and they would say, um, they, and it was a time of thankfulness. They would say, this week, uh, we didn't know how we were going to eat uh, all week because Juan only had work from Monday to Tuesday, and God provided, something came available on Thursday. Somebody came and said, hey, can you come help with that? And so we were able to, to, Juan was able to make some money, and we were able to eat all week. Praise the Lord. And then the band would kick up, boom, 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 boom. Praise the Lord. And they would sing a praise song. Oh, Jesus is awesome. And then somebody else would come up. And almost all of the time of Thanksgiving was not Thanksgiving the way we would do it. It's like, thank you, God, that I've got a new truck, and I killed three deer with my $400 rifle, and I got a new boat, and I was able, that wasn't it. It was, we ate this week, God supplied, woo! And everybody would go, praise the Lord! And that's a miracle, that's amazing. That's the experience of most Christians. And so, if we're looking at this text in the light of 2,000 years of Christendom, the way that we interpret it today in America doesn't make any sense. And so we've got to dig deeper. We've got to look at this and say, what is this that God is trying to teach us with this text? Because we know that what he's not trying to teach us is the way to go to heaven is to feed poor people. And we know that what he's not trying to teach us is that there's anything that we can do to get a check in the box that says, see, now God owes me heaven. Why, I visited some people in jail, I visited some people in the hospital, I, I fed some poor people, and I gave some people a drink. So, bam, God, you got to let me in. That is nowhere in your Bible. So, what do we do with this text? Let's unpack it and look at each one of those characters and see how the rest of the Bible informs us of those characters. So, the first one is... the sheep on the right, and the goats on the left. I read an article written about this text, and it said, what does God have against goats? All right, so there's a little bit of language issue going on here. Uh, and I first ran across this when we were in Turkey. They have a, uh, a holiday that's called um, Korban Bayram. Korban is the, the Arabic word for sin. So it's the sin holiday. And what that means is every family has to go and buy uh, a sheep, or it's based on the size of the family. If you have a big family, you might have to buy a camel, but you have to buy an animal, and then that animal is sacrificed for your family, and then you get the meat. It's really not unlike our Christmas holiday in that uh, in Turkey, the Turkish Air Force did something similar to Toys for Tots. Um, they had you would go to an Air Force base, and they would have taken, you know, the, the drill field and put a fence around it, and there would be hundreds of sheep, and they had numbers on them, and you would walk out, and you would say, you know, as if you had some way to pick, and you'd go, I want this one, and then they would write the number down, and then in the bays that were made for cleaning vehicles, the, the, if any of you have been on a military base knows exactly what I'm talking about, or even if you've been around and seen uh, car washes that have a bay you pull into that gets hosed 
down in those bays that are on that military base, they would literally have 30 imams, and they would line these sheep up, and they pull them in, and you get to stand there, and you're like, my, my, the sheep that I bought is 135, and they come in with 135, um, and, and uh, then they, the, the imam sits there, and he sings a song. There's literally a little song, and he sings this song, and then he thump, slices that sheep's throat, and then he picks the sheep up and hangs it on a hook that's there, and he cleans that sheep right there in front of you. And gentlemen who have cleaned a deer, the first time that I saw it, I was like, oh, my dear Lord, I need to learn this man's skills. Because he went from sheep standing there going, man, to handing you a package of meat in about five minutes. It was a thing of beauty. I mean, I don't know what, how they sharpen their knives that way, but I mean, it was like, and then he hands you the meat, and the, the imams get to keep the hide. That's their payment for, for doing it. So there's a big stack of, of sheep hides over here, and um, the, the payment that you, you paid 50 bucks or whatever for the sheep, that money is going to raise for gifts for people who don't have any money. So again, it's just like Toys for Tots. Uh, so the first time that we were in Turkey, I wanted to go see this done. And so I went to the local Air Force base. And my, the first thing I noticed as I walk into this big drill field that's got all these sheep is that about half of those sheep weren't sheep, they were goats. And I'm like, do these people not know the difference between a sheep and a goat? And I found out that in Middle Eastern ideas, the sheep and the goats are essentially the same thing. Any room... Rumen critter is kind of called blanketly a sheep. And shepherds frequently would run as they, they run critters out across fields, would on purpose mix sheep and goats because sheep crop grass off at the top just above the roots. And goats, those of you who've ever had goats or been around goats, eat all of the garbage grass. And so Grazing them together means that that field is actually healthier when he grazes them off of it than when they got there. Any of the milkweed and the summer cedar and the stuff that the sheep won't eat, the goats do eat, and then the goats cut the grass. Essentially, they clip it down right at the top. And so if you know what you're doing, you run them together. Now, we've all read in the Old Testament where the land of Israel is called a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Now, when we hear that, we think of Barber's milk. When a Jesus day, somebody heard that, they didn't think of cow's milk because nobody really drank cow's milk. In fact, I didn't know this until reading this. Like 80% of the world's population is lactose intolerant. When they heard milk and honey, they thought of goat's milk. So... Every, and uh, those of you who've ever, is anybody here, uh, just show of hands, who's raised goats or been around goats? I know JR's got some goats. So goats are, and this is mixed company, are prolific in their reproduction. They have a lot of babies. So those of you who have been around any animals know that if you want to milk an animal and she has babies, they don't keep the babies right? And so several times a year, what a shepherd would have to do is go through his herd and take any of the male goats out. In fact, when the, the 
two brothers in the story of the prodigal son when he says, you know what, I've been here my whole life and you've never even, even killed a kid for me. He refers to one of those male goats because that was the cheapest meat you could get. Because several times a year, a shepherd would separate out the male goats from the rest of the herd so that the mama goats, would you could milk them. And so they would have to get rid of that, and so that was cheap meat. And so what the prodigal son is saying, or the prodigal son's older brother is saying is, you never even gave me the cheapest meat, and my brother comes in here, and you're killing the fatted cow for him. I never even got the cheap stuff. And so that male goat, which is the word that's used here in Greek, that when Jesus says separate from the sheep from the goats, is, is just referring to those male kids that are taken out of it. And it didn't have, it's, it's a common expression like we would used to say, uh, well, as a housewife separates the pears from the apples. It doesn't have to do with sheep and goats as much as it is somebody that's going through like items and able to separate them out quickly. So, what Jesus' point of this is, is not one is a species of goat and one is a species of sheep. He's saying that there's a quick, obvious separation. The king is coming in, he's separating them out. The goat's on the left, the sheep on the right. It's not about the breed, the point is about the separating. So, we have the sheep. The goats will come back to the king. Let's look at this idea of least of these. Who are the least of these, my brethren? Nowhere in the book of Matthew does Jesus refer to anybody as a family member except other believers. Nowhere. In fact, we have it pretty explicitly in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, 46 through 49 says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So Jesus is teaching. His mom and brothers come outside. They want to talk to him. Somebody points that out to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, your brothers and your mom are outside. Jesus responds to them and says, Here are my mother and my brothers, stretching his hand toward the disciples. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So when Jesus says, the least of these, my brothers, that familial title, my brothers, makes it about those who do the will of the Father, not about people who just happened to be the least of these. He's saying, in fact, he says the exact same thing just a few chapters before in this same set of teaching. In Matthew 10, he says, whoever receives me and whoever receives me sent, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he is, will by no means lose his reward. Here Jesus is saying the same thing. If you take care of 
people who are my disciples, then it's just like you're taking care of me. They're not going to lose their reward. So if we take the rest of the book of Matthew to put this in context, we see Jesus always is talking about other Christians when he talks about his brethren. Always. So, the other thing that that I see that seems strange is that Matthew, the, the king, is using the language of inheritance, and yet both the sheep and the goats are surprised. The sheep are surprised that they're being let in, and the goats are surprised that they're being excluded, right? They're shocked. What? Wait, when? When did we ever see you in naked or see you thirsty or see you in jail or see you hungry? When? The king doesn't say, come to your inheritance that you earned. He says, come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. The king is using the language of inheritance, and the people are shocked that they're being included. No one earns an inheritance. An inheritance is always, by very definition, based on whose child you are, not on what you've done. An inheritance means that your father had means. Two people, one of them a really good person and one of them a really bad person, the bad guy may receive a much better inheritance than the good guy because the bad guy's father was rich. You see the difference? An inheritance not about earning, but inheritance is about who the father is. And I want you to understand that in Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible says, in him, in Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward the saints. This is Paul retelling this parable. He's saying that because you believed in Jesus, you raid an inheritance. Not because of what you've done, but because of whose you are. We know that we have that inheritance because we have the Holy Spirit. And we know that we have the Holy Spirit because we take care of the saints. That's the exact same thing that Jesus is saying here. That we, as a church, fall on each other to care for each other. So you want to know what Jesus is giving as a litmus test here? How you can tell if you're really a believer or not? How do you treat other Christians? Do you show love to brothers in Christ? Do you work with them? Do you come along beside them? Do you... You realize when Jesus talks about being in jail, and we talked about this last year when we studied the book of Ephesians, the way jail worked was is that you were thrown into a dungeon. The only way you ate is that somebody else came and brought you something to eat. The only way you had clothes was that somebody loved you enough, cared for you enough to bring you clothes. 
We've seen the, sto- the, the story of the friends that brought the crippled man to Jesus to heal. It, if you were sick, you had no value to anybody. You're sick. So the only people who take care of you are those people who really, really love you. You can't do anything for them if you're sick, right? And so what this whole parable is pointing out is is that believers aren't looking to each other to see, what can you do for me? We take care of each other, and we show each other love, and we do things for each other simply out of love because we're brothers in Christ, Sometimes as a pastor, I get to do strange and bizarre things. I get some of the weirdest requests. And one of those was there was a lady here in the church, an older lady who's who's widowed, uh, who called me and she said, I ran over a um, hammock strap and it is all wound up in my lawnmower and I can't get it out. And so me and some of the other guys went over to her house and I had to pick the lawnmower up while the other guy crawled under there and cut that strap out from under the lawnmower. And I will tell you that if time moves too fast for you, it do, do uh, planks. Planks will help time slow down for you. Um, but also holding an uh, old John Deere lawnmower like this while somebody else is underneath it cutting out straps. That will make time slow down. You got it yet? You got it yet? Seriously, have you got it yet? I need you to get it. Right? And so the reason I went over and helped her, in my mind, I thought to myself, I want somebody to do that for Ann if I die. I want somebody to help take care of her. But in the light of this text, that, that should really have nothing to do with it. It's because she's a child of the king. We take care of each other. We show each other love. Even people who are sick, who are in jail, people who can't give anything back to us. We love them. But I would even argue that if that's how we look at this text, we're missing the point that the people who read this text in the first century would have gotten. That is definitely part of it. This text, the application of this text is about fruit bearing and about identity. Who are you? Because what we're supposed to be doing is going through life saying, who I am is a child of the king and who they are is a child of a king and so I'm going to sacrificially serve them. But that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is in the beginning when Jesus starts out talking about what happens with the king for this reason. Remember where he is. He's standing in the temple. He's just been peppered by questions from the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the chief priest, and all those people are still standing around. Put yourself in that setting. So he is in the temple, surrounded by religious people. He's been teaching The crowd and his disciple. Remember, we've gone over it a thousand times. He would go back and forth between answering questions from the Sadducees, answering questions from the scribes, turning to his disciples. Now, these people said this, that this is like, and tell him a parable, and then answering the question again, and then turning to the crowd. And so he's surrounded by all these people who are ultimately asking him questions, and they want to know, who is this guy? 
The scribes are asking him, hey, what about this coin? Do you think that, that we should pay taxes? The scribes are asking him, why do you think that you have authority to tump tables over in this temple? All these questions are bubbling to the top, and everybody in the audience is watching him to see how he's going to respond. And Matthew ends this entire section by this story. Because this story, Jesus buttons up the answer to the question of, A, the temple, the way it's all going to end, the way it's going to end is with the king judging. And he also answers the question pregnant in everyone's mind, who does this guy think he is by saying, I am the king. Listen to how he describes it. He says, and his favorite term for himself is the Son of Man. And he opens up and says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Everybody there would have known he was referring to himself. So when I come back in my glory. Now he's got their attention. Now they're shocked. Who calls themselves when I, who says of themselves, when I come back in my glory? He goes on and takes it to the next level because he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. In English, we miss that this is a direct quotation that would have been like if somebody said, well, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we all, that would have triggered in our mind what verse that's referring to. When Jesus says, with all the holy angels with him, he's referencing back to a verse. And that verse says this. It's in Zechariah 14, 5. And that verse ends this way. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy angels with him. And there, Zephaniah refers to God as Yahweh, the great I am. When Jesus says the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him. Jesus just announced in front of all these religious leaders, I am the I am. I can feel the shock that would rumble across that crowd. Did He really just say that? Did that man just claim to be God? When I come and all my holy angels with me. And you can just feel those religious leaders getting angrier and angrier. Did he just call himself Yahweh? Did he really just call himself the I am? So when the Son of Man comes and all his holy angels with him, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. As he's standing there looking at that crowd, he tells them, I am God, and I will choose who gets into heaven and who doesn't. I will bring the nations in front of me, all of them, whether it's Rome or Israel or Assyria, I will judge them, and I will separate them out the way a sheep separates the sheep from the, or the way a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's the point of this text. This text screams that Jesus here claims to be the I am. And the rest of what he said immediately falls into line. The shepherd is the one who decides who lives and who dies. The I am is the one who's in control. 
as Jesus is quoting Bible verses, he's going back and forth between a text in Ze- this text that we read in Zephaniah, another text where he is claiming Yahweh. And so now it should make perfect sense why this text is the introduction to Advent. Here next week when we come into church, there'll be a little table here, and there'll be some candles on top of it, and five candles to be exact, and four of them will be, uh, or three of them will be purple, one of them will be blue, and then the one in the middle will be white. Everybody always asks, what's the colors for? And there are significance to the colors, but um, each one of those candles represents a different part of what the king brings. The first candle that we light next week represents hope. The second candle represents peace. The third candle represents love. And the final candle, the one that's blue, represents joy that should permeate our lives. And for those four weeks, for 2,000 years, Christians have looked and said, the king came bringing joy, the king's coming to bring ultimate joy. The king came bringing hope. The king's coming bringing ultimate hope. The king came bringing peace. The king's coming bringing real, lasting, eternal peace. And then finally, the king came and there was joy. The angels sang, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill among men. And then on that day, he's coming and there will be joy for eternity. And so before we can recognize, before we can deal with the fact that the king came and the king's coming, we've got to recognize that he's the king. We've got to understand that Jesus isn't just some itinerant preacher in the first century who said some really smart things. We have to understand that this man who walked around Israel with dirty feet, who healed people and got hungry and sleepy and slept in the boat and was able to command the sea and the sky, wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet. He was, is the king. He came and he's coming back. And so as we look at this text, I want us to close with the final look at the king when he comes back. Because when he came before, he came in humility. He came as a little baby in a manger where very few people recognize his kingship so that when he stood in the temple and said, I am Yahweh, it was shocking. When he's coming back, there will be no doubt. In Revelation chapter 19, we read, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arranged in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Nobody will doubt who he is. Father God, Lord, I pray as we enter this Christmas season, that we look long and we look hard at the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh God, we thank you that the first time he came in humility, that he came and was a sacrifice for our sin. And Lord, we thank you, thank you, thank you that when he's coming back, he will be wearing many diadems. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. To the praise of the Father, in Jesus' name, amen.